Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Well, welcome along to this episode. I'm glad you could join me because we're going to be speaking with Zoe from TalkTown. TalkTown is a game which was developed by Zoe, which is aiming at helping deaf children to communicate with others around them. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Zoe. Fulfilling purpose, it just satiates this incredible drive and annoyance I have that people with hearing impairment and deafness have can have poor outcomes for completely preventable reasons. Mm. And we can do something about that. And I am. Why I keep doing it? selfishly it's really really fun and it's really <laughs> rewarding yeah and um i love that i get to be an audiologist who's also a social entrepreneur and a researcher and all of those things feed off each other yeah i really enjoyed my conversation with zoe because she was unveiling a world that i really don't know much about which is what it's like to be deaf and some of the barriers that you face in our society i know that you're really going to enjoy this perspective now, before we dive into that interview, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who's leaving ratings and reviews about the show. It really does help to get the word out to other people, and it takes you about 10 seconds to do it. So if you haven't done that, please consider doing so. And for this interview, I actually recorded it, so it's available on the Facebook page as well if you want to see the video. Now let's get into the interview with Zoe. So I'm here with Zoe Hawes, who's the founder of TalkTown. Thank you for joining me today. Cool. Thanks for having me along. Um, what we do on the podcast is talk a lot about purpose and why people do what they're doing. And in order to do that, we go back to their beginnings and try to trace a bit of their history. And um, I know you've listened to the podcast before, so that's quite helpful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, could we just go back to the beginning of your life and just tell us a bit about where you're from? Sure. Um, I have to be really careful about this. It's quite difficult to contextualize myself as a signing hearing person people want to understand oh, so why do you know sign language and I say it's because some of my family members are deaf um, that's a bit of a simplistic answer really um, they don't like me talking about them too much so I need to talk about my experience of growing up in their family rather than talk on their behalves but certainly growing up with family members with hearing impairment really was a really formative thing for me I, though I didn't realize it at the time that was just our normal. Mm. Um, and I left home and went to university to be a biologist. I spent most of my childhood mucking about in the, about in the backyard. But I didn't realise that actually being really interested in how people communicate and what happens when that breaks down um, is not only something that really I'm really passionate about, it really drives me, but also is a bit of a, a niche skill, I suppose. Mm. Um, so... It's so that childhood, mm. that childhood, where was that? Was that here in Christchurch in, or was it elsewhere? In Lower Hutt, okay. in, in Stokes Valley, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and that that biology or you know the studying things outdoors was that something that you always enjoyed, being out in the open and. To be honest, um, it was an escape. So our family was impacted by both hearing loss and mental illness. Um, both of which weren't really well dealt with in the 80s and 90s. I think mm. as a society we've come leaps and bounds in um, talking about mental illness and being really open about it. Unfortunately, deafness is such a unique experience that 
there's still a long way to go in that regard, I think, although it's great now. Sign language is an official language. It's part of the New Zealand curriculum. It's getting a lot more visibility. Um, but, yeah, I just I just went out the back and and uh, immersed myself in the natural world. But really the, the social world is, I guess, where my passions lie. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And so the sign language itself, that's something that you were taught as a child and it was just a natural language for you or no we actually we played around with it so New Zealand sign language wasn't really accessible to uh, to deaf children it's only in recent years that they've had deaf teachers of the deaf come back into the education system and signed English was around but we, we played around with it a little bit but we we didn't need to use it to communicate what I didn't realize though is the behaviors that I were doing to make things easier for example I'd get my family members' attention, make sure they were facing me, uh, modify the language that I was using, um, all these sort of innate strategies that um, I just took for granted. But it was later when I went to Victoria University for a year, I had the opportunity to formally study New Zealand Sign Language. I was actually on my way to a chemistry lecture um, and I saw a fingerspelling chart, so a picture showing... Uh, how to spell in New Zealand Sign Language on on a door. Mm. I thought, oh, that's way more interesting than chemistry formulas. Oh, really? <laughs> um, and I sort of these sort of vague, fuzzy memories came back of us doing this a little bit at home. Mm. And I was just standing there spelling to myself. And out comes this really interesting, sort of amazing university professor guy and I realised that he was deaf. And I said, oh, you're, you're deaf. And even though I had no formal sign language then, and um, this had turned out to be one of my, my dear friends and mentors, David McKee, and we had a, quite a f- full conversation given his amazing communication abilities. Right. And um, he said, oh, come along to class. And I said, sure, okay. So I, I bunked <laughs> chemistry. Uh, ended up in the sign language class and, and haven't looked back. Um, so though we didn't use formal sign language at home, just the whole idea of communicating, being open to different ways of communicating, uh, communicating visually, um, having studied other languages before, even though they were spoken languages, helped me um, just sort of be open to the idea of different grammars and things. And uh, it, was the, it was the first thing I got some decent marks at at university. <laughs> so that inspired me to keep going. Wow. Mm. So was that in your first year at university or was it in, you know, a couple of years it in? Was or a, it was uh, about, my third, about my third year. Yeah, I did one year at, up at Vic in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I foolishly went back and kept flogging away at science for a while. It took me took me a long time to realise that that wasn't just not going to pan out. Right. <laughs> Since leaving university, I've only ever worked um, in research, often with deaf kids or sociolinguistics of sign language. Um, in my really, really informative experience I've had that's been really important to this whole journey was working as a teacher aide. So in, in Wellington, there was a a deaf unit at the primary school next to the university and I would work there part-time in between lectures. And it was that kind of fly-on-the-wall experience of watching the deaf kids interact with their hearing peers in the playground that really their, their peer, even their parents and teachers aren't privy to. Really kind of made, made me think about we're not really doing what's important here. 
Um, so this vivid memory that stuck in my mind as I was on playground duty supervising one deaf boy, and he had quite good speech. Um, but he, he tried to sort of break into the different games and the groups of kids, and then he gave up and just joined a, a chasing game with the younger kids because that didn't require any mm. language or negotiation. It was a right. physical kind of a thing. I thought, oh, that's so sad. You know, he should be with his nine-year-old peers, but instead he has to play chase with the five-year-olds. And so I tried to teach him some sort of key phrases or strategies, say, oh, can I join in? Can I play? Or things that were kind of social lubricants, I suppose, that Mm. would help him kind of... Open the door to the conversation. exactly. But then uh, quite figuratively and literally the bell would ring and would run out of time. Right. Mm. Yeah. And so that realization, what were some of the other things that you were realizing at that time about the way it works or has worked in the past? Um, I mean, when it comes to deaf children, yeah. you said that there was sort of a, that realization of that moment. Mm. Were there? Can you unpack that a little bit more? Like, uh, apart from maybe, or is that the answer? Is that it was about teaching them how to have that lubricant of of conversation i guess that moment was the question and then when i went to uk i started to see some of the answers and the answers really were critical mass so new zealand um unfortunately one of the downsides of having a tiny population is that our deaf kids are spread all over the country Mm. there's three thousand diluted into their mainstream schools and like many professionals and parents and teachers if you don't see any different you don't know any otherwise and you you your expectations of deaf children um, are made accordingly when I went to the UK I worked in a in a much larger um, as a deaf school attached to a mainstream school and that was the best of both worlds so it meant that the deaf children had peers on whom they were with equal terms they had full language models they had um you know, jokes and gags and falling out and just all these natural Mm. social and language interactions. Um, And I also met deaf adults who were investment bankers and neuroscientists and all these professionals. Um, So it just really flipped my understanding on it, of what I thought deafness was and what it meant and what its implications were on its head. Right. Um, it really doesn't have to be uh, a option, a life limiting or a, a an options limiting state of being. Mm. And in the UK, there was that critical mass of people where there was more opportunities because they were more, I guess, grouped together so that they could learn. Yeah, and. So while that's one thing that I will always passionately um, push for in New Zealand, I'm also realistic that for many families, um, especially in rural communities, that's just not feasible. So what else? How else can we give these kids the opportunities to develop really important um, self-advocacy and confidence and Mm. social and communication skills that mean they have a better everyday experience? Yeah. Well, I think we're about to get to talk town, but mm-hmm. before we do that, I want to talk, or I want to ask two questions. Um, the first one is just, you mentioned going to the UK. Did you go there with that purpose in mind that you wanted to see the way things were done there, or was it 
more of a general OE kind of I would, experience? Yeah, I'd love to say it was sort of planned and deliberate, but no, I was dissatisfied with my life in New Zealand. I was working in government, um, not making any tangible difference that I could see. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I wanted to be a, a tiny fish in a bigger pond. And But I didn't realise, again, that I, I do have some somewhat sort of unique skills and experience and backgrounds that um, I got the job at the deaf school and then I was fortunate to work at the Deafness, Cognition and Language Research Centre at University College London. And there I worked on a project, it was a big international project and I worked on the UK arm of it, looking at theory of mind development in deaf toddlers. So theory of mind is when we have awareness of ourselves and also can understand that other people have thoughts and feelings and beliefs that are different to our own. Mm. It's a really crucial skill to be able to have, to really get on in life. Um, so at a fundamental level, understanding, to be able to understand the possibility of lies. Mm. And a lot of jokes are based on theory of mind. Right. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of deaf kids are either delayed or don't fully develop their theory of mind. So we were trying to look at the, the mm. language experiences of those children and how that played out for them. Mm. So what age are you talking about, or is there a is, is there a average age where this sort of thing happens? Is it? So we were trying to look at earlier than really people had done so before. So we were looking at uh, two-year-olds and even right. earlier than that infants. So we're looking at sort of pre-verbal measures of um, of understanding of what's going on, and in practical terms, I loved it. It's super rewarding. Um, testing two-year-olds means playing games with them. Like right. a test has to be fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, they certainly kept me on my toes. Right. Mm. And what what were you, what sort of tests were they? I'm just curious. What what were you doing with the two year olds to test them on these things? Yeah. So we um, an example of what we tried to do that to understand what a baby was able to reason without being able to ask them, and also being language neutral because some of the children used signs, some used uh, spoken English, some used both. Right. Is we'd um, we had a false belief task, so we had an animation of a ball running through a, um, a tube and if it's blocked uh, or not and whether the ball flowed as expected. And babies cunningly can tell you a lot without being able to tell you anything. If something happens that isn't true or breaks the laws of physics, they'll stare at it. <laughs> so we're, we're measuring um, eye gaze and, and things like that. Hmm. And we also interviewed the parents and videotaped uh, interactions between mums, uh, reading stories and looking at pictures with their children and coded the sort of language that they use. So with deaf children, people can sometimes overemphasize quite concrete sort of subjects and that might be limited by, by their knowledge of sign language, for example. But when you only talk about nouns and verbs and you don't talk about feelings uh the children don't build a scaffold to understand mental states in themselves and others hmm. it's fascinating <laughs> and that kept you busy for a couple of months or years or? uh there was only stayed there for a year and then i came back to new zealand once again sort of fell into working in government and i did that to far, for far too long it wasn't until a couple of years ago i thought wow I've got 30 more years of working life ahead and I'm not making any 
tangible difference here. Um, it's really important that there are people kind of at that higher level driving the ship, I guess. But for me personally, I'm too impatient and selfish. I want that instant reward of being able <laughs> to see the, the positive difference I'm making to someone's life. Yeah. So I applied to uh, do the master's course in clinical audiology here in Canterbury. And uh, yeah, it was a massive, a massive life change. Mm. A lot going so it was on. a bit of stepping out, not exactly sure what you're getting into, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was. It's a. It was really scary. Um, you know, dropping out of the workforce, uh, had a mortgage, all these, all these sort of complications. But it, I really thought I just can't sit behind a computer for mm. thirty more years. Um, and I went and did some observation to make sure that this is definitely is this job what I think it is. And I went to Kenapuru Hospital up in Wellington and and did some observation there and. It just blew me away. Like we have patients for an hour at a time and usually we really increase their quality of life dramatically mm. for the better and they come back and tell us that. I mean, mm. you can't beat that. Yeah. And even for people, there was one old gentleman who we, we couldn't turn up his hearing aids anymore and he was really lonely and isolated. And I got him a brochure to turn on the captions with his TV and I wrote out and we suggested and I... Mm. Uh, we figured out with him how to turn on his captions just so he could watch his news. Mm. Like there's, there's always something you can do right. to improve somebody's connection with the world. Mm. Mm. That's a great. So you realized that this was something that you wanted to do and to study. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I, I didn't get in at first. I was number 13. I was at the top of the wait list and I was gutted. And then I, <laughs> I, um, I snuck in at the last minute and for the first time in my life, I've done a lot of study before my first test, I absolutely bombed it. I got a D, bottom of the class. I was devastated. I thought, right, I'm going to have to pack up with my tail between my legs, go back home. Um, and I even had dreams of a head of a department saying in his Australian accent, I'm sorry, you didn't get in. You right. didn't kick you out. <laughs> um, but I got through, and a turning point for me was this assignment. Um, which I called Talk Town. So we had to develop a resource to educate people about an aspect of hearing loss, basically give them some tools to help manage that. Mm. And I thought about all those experiences I'd had growing up and watching the deaf kids in the playground and the research that I'd done about the importance of language exposure and mm. stigma and identity and all that stuff. And I just sat down and drew crude stick figures and made this this game Yeah kids create a character that they can identify with and wears the same hearing gear that they do and mm-hmm. and faces some of the challenges that they do in the real world. And the first time in my life, I got 100% and I thought, oh, whew, yeah, saved my GPA. But also, maybe I do have something to offer here. Right. <laughs> it's worth sticking around. <laughs> and it just stayed as an idea for a while until my second year when I got through the lecture part and I thought, Maybe I'll maybe I'll investigate this. Yeah. And I, so how long ago is that now? So this is that? Um, still just, un, just under a year ago. So about sort of April May mm-hmm. last year, I wandered into the Centre for Entrepreneurship at University of Canterbury, mm-hmm. and I said to Michelle there, um, "I've kind of got this idea. Do you help make ideas things?" And um, hats off to her. I really got to thank her for 
steering me and pushing into these opportunities that have really helped me turn this from just a cool kind of idea to aiming to launch at the end of this year. Mm. And what did you know about UCE before you went in? Um, very, very little. So my my biases and my impressions of Christchurch were that it's very, uh, very flat white, non-diverse, um, conservative culture. Um, and I've just been blown away. It's such an incredibly invigorating environment and things like the Ministry of Awesome. So I, I came down here and I left government because I thought I can't do that to, anymore. And then to have something called the Ministry of Awesome, I thought that's fantastic. <laughs> I wonder what they do. And I learned that they help um, people, uh, startup entrepreneurs get going. I thought, oh, that's a shame. That's not for me. I right. don't know anything about that sort of stuff. Um, who would have known shortly yeah. after that uh, I'm right in that world and it's an incredible place to, to have ideas and be supported to, um, to act on them. Yeah, and <clears throat> just for some people who are listening, they're, they're not living here in Christchurch with UCE. I'm just curious um, if you could describe what it is for people. So UCE um, really supports students um, to become entrepreneurs. I guess I'm kind of the reverse of many people. So many people are interested in entrepreneurialism and they want to have their own business. Um, where I came into it as a as a geek, as an audiologist, and I had an idea and I saw that forming a social enterprise was a way to, to make that happen and another way to solve that problem. Um, so I didn't have any of the background in finance or business or any of that stuff. So I have to learn all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but they really have all these different um, programs and initiatives and just it's just a space as well on mm-hmm. the university. Like it's, um, you know, it's all open and there's a ping pong table and coming from this really dry kind of public sector corporate world, it's just fun to be in a dynamic, mm-hmm. exciting environment. Yeah. Yeah, it really encourages diversity of people as well, doesn't it? All yeah. trying to do something a bit differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you used the word social enterprise there. So was that a term that you'd been aware of before? No, I, it was a really steep learning curve for me. So I came into this thinking, oh, I want to be a charity. I, I don't want to make a profit from my idea. Mm. But I soon realized that my first, um, I guess, principle is accessibility. So I want to make this available to as many kids as possible. But the second close runner-up is sustainability. So I am a not-for-profit business, um, and I've learned a, a lot from the resources and that you've put out, so thanks for those. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, I didn't understand what a social enterprise was, um, and now I see it as a, a, a different way of solving problems. Yeah, no, that's great. And then just talk us through maybe what TalkTown actually does for, for kids and sure. um, you know what your mission is and mm-hmm. vision and that type of thing. Cool. So TalkTown will be um, a digital game to support deaf children's self-advocacy and communication skills. And I've got a few specific aims, sort of, and core skills that the game is targeting. The first one is stigma busting. And with that, I'm talking about stigma, internalised stigma that people may feel themselves about being deaf or having wearing hearing gear, and external stigma, so things like bullying or... Yeah, the sort of other sort of pressures. Hmm. So right from the start, 
the users create a character that they can identify with and they get to select their hair color and the different types of hair and gear and that in itself is empowering because at the moment there's only one cartoon character and one uh, doll available that that have cochlear implants so the school there might be the only kids wearing hearing aids. That, that's in itself is a great thing. Mm. Um, and the feedback I've got from students um, so far is really great. They love that and they get a real buzz and a kick about being able to pick, um, especially some of the more obscure technology that's not really um, as visible. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're really like, oh, you've got a bone conduction aid. Oh, that's really cool. Mm. So um, so they're able to really identify with the characters yeah. that are created. Like it's the same hair color and it's the same implants or whatever sure. hearing aids it yeah. is yeah and and vice versa it's um this is the whole idea of this is it's a it's a game so they can experiment and they can mm. um try out different ways of being um without the negative social consequences mm-hmm. i saw so many times uh teachers of the deaf um and people in authority well-meaning but saying some quite damaging things for example I was at a Keep in Touch Day for deaf students in Wellington. They're spread all out and they get together so they can actually, you know, see some other deaf kids. And the students, some of the students who speak and listen, saw the students that I was working with um, signing and they were really intrigued and enthralled. And they would sort of, they were playing with sign language. They were moving their hands and, and the teacher would come over and say, don't use, don't try and talk to Joe uh, don't try and sign to Joe. He talks like you. And so that child has immediately got the idea that, no, that's not for him. That's mm. something he's not allowed to, to play with. So I, I wanted to give these kids a chance to try out different stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the game, they have options of different ways of communicating. And if there's a communication breakdown, so their friend doesn't understand what the deaf child is trying to say or the character, then they can text they can write it down, they can try and say it again, they can sign. They've got all these different strategies open to them about how they can mm. get across their desires. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And mm. it does kind of lead back to that the story that you told about the nine-year-old boy who you were trying to help integrate in with his peers, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Is that the moment that you'd say was the, the genesis of it? or? I think Talk Town is a, it sounds a bit over the top, but it really is a culmination of kind of my life so far, right. really. <laughs> that, that is a formative uh, point, definitely. I saw that there was a need. Yeah. And that's been uh, validated by uh, feedback I've got from parents and teachers. I wanted to confirm, is this something that people want? Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's a cool idea, but um, uh, and the feedback I got was overwhelming that they for parents and teachers, the social skills of their deaf children is a real problem they see the and they see the flow and effects of that mm-hmm. um but there's no resources specifically tailored for these kids at the moment so mm-hmm. to be able to give them some, some, something to support that mm-hmm. um is is really exciting so we talked about stigma and in different uh, i guess communication modes mm-hmm. um but i'm also focusing on some of the specific challenges for deaf kids or deaf people, um, such as optimizing their communication environment. So we're sitting in a, a acoustically beautiful room right now, <laughs> and we can we're sitting face to face, and we yep. can hear each other really well. Mm-hmm. But if there's a lot of background noise, or my face was silhouetted by bright light behind me, you wouldn't be able yep. to lip read my face very clearly. Right. So to be able to resolve that situation, you would need 
firstly to be able to identify those barriers and have the confidence to do something about it right. and also the appropriate language and the the nice social way of asking me oh can we please swap so can i can just see move you over here right i see yeah yeah so it's breaking that down into mm. discrete skills that hopefully these deaf kids can translate in different settings around their life yeah Mm, that's great it really yeah it makes sense and and the feedback from the the kids themselves has all been positive it sounds like um for the most part i ran some workshops with different groups of students from van ashted education center here Mm. in christchurch Mm -hmm. and it it confirmed that there is like a a max age limit the 17 year old boys so nah this is a bit it's not for me yeah right (laughs) and that's 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 fair enough but the first uh piece of feedback i got was um, I showed the kids a demo that I had uh, made of a, a scene in a fast food restaurant. I tried to think of sort of aspirational, not teenage, what do teenagers want to do? They want to go to McDonald's with their friends. Um, and the character in the game has to go and order and she can't see the face of the cashier clearly because mm-hmm. his hat is obscuring his face. Right. So she at first she is rude to him, say, oh, can't hear you, look up. And that doesn't go well. So then she gets another opportunity and says, oh, can you please look up? helps me to understand you better. And the guy says, sure, no problem. She has a successful interaction, gets her fast food. Mm-hmm. And then there's some other challenges. So I showed the scene to the kids and the first piece of feedback I got was, oh, I can see that will give me more confidence to talk to hearing people when I go to McDonald's on Friday with my friends. And I thought, awesome <laughs> that's it couldn't have hoped for yeah for you better. had the validation right there huh yeah and mm. it's really really important to me that talk town is made with and for and as much as possible by deaf students so much happens uh to deaf children um you know as a almost clinician i'm part of that so that they have all these professionals bombarding them advisors on deaf children speech language therapists audiologists And that's fantastic that we have that Mm. support system in New Zealand. But I wanted this to be something that the kids can drive themselves. Mm. They could choose when to log on. They can navigate their learning journey through the game. Um, Yeah, it's not something that happens to them. Right. Yeah. So it really is that word empowering, isn't it? Because they're choosing who the character is and they're kind of living through that to to learn these skills. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, that's great. And the name Talk Town, how did you come up with that? Um, I a little bit regret that. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, it, it, it's a bit cheesy. It was uh, just really sort of my assignment. I like the alliteration. Not sure if you're aware, but unfortunately in deaf education, there's still this polarizing debate about how deaf children should communicate, whether they should sign or only speak. Right. Um, and I'm really sad about that because so much hot air is, and just energy is wasted and at the, at the core of it is a child who needs a strong identity and a full fluent first language mm. and access to both deaf and hearing worlds um, when I say talk I don't just mean speech um, I mean Communicate, mm. communicate, t- communication, community maybe doesn't didn't quite sound so snappy. Mm. But when I sign Talk Town, the sign I use doesn't mean speech; it means more communicate. I see. Yeah. So it's sort of Talk Town, not Speak Town. Right. Mm. Yeah. 
And you, you mentioned something there, just the debate within the world of education for deaf children. Are there, I don't know much about this world. <laughs> Are there other things that might be of interest to people listening who don't know much about deaf education um, that that have intrigued you or that are, you know, kind of interesting things? Yeah, I'm, I'm finding myself increasingly as um, people are asking my opinion on this as I, I do have a unique position as a signing audiologist that I'm aware of. I'll be the only fluently signing audiologist in New Zealand. Um, and it's quite, you know, traditionally audiology and deaf world, and deaf culture have been seen to be at odds at each other. Mm. But, um so I've had deaf people um, and different people approach me and say, oh, what's your opinion on this? Because I can see that, you know, you're a signer, but you're also an audiologist. And, yeah, I have to be careful of that because I haven't quite graduated yet, so I'm not qualified to give that advice. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's an interesting space to be in. Really, the whole sort of debate has just been shifted again because of the rapid advances in technology we've had in recent years. Right. So cochlear implants and advanced hearing aids give even severe and profoundly deaf children, most of them have access to spoken language and can hear and speak these days, mm. um, which has meant that there are even less people who use sign language. The community is dwindling and dwindling. Right. Um, but... What I feel really passionate about is that that's not the final answer. It's not being able to speak well. It's not being able to hear in ideal situations. We're still not giving those children the tools they need out there in the hearing world because the technology, as good as it is, is not perfect. And people people forget that a child with a cochlear implant will really struggle to hear in noisy situations mm-hmm. like a classroom. Mm-hmm. Another thing that is just becoming clearer and clearer for me over time is that the simple act of using sign language with your child is incredibly validating. It doesn't matter if you're a poor language model and that sign language is not that child's first language. By just signing with them at home, it's saying to them, you're okay. Being deaf is okay. We and I are different. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing and you're deaf, but you know, I'm going to meet you part way here mm. and I'm going to celebrate your identity and your language and, um, yeah, and give you access to that. And that means that that child, you know, can have deaf friends and go to deaf club later on. I think that's really what many hearing parents struggle with and that's what I saw within my own family is that um, accepting that their child can be different but still belong to them and still be part of that family. Mm. And the, the best analogy is that deaf kids are like uh like wizards in harry potter so most deaf kids have um born to hearing parents or muggle parents in the potter analogy and then boom here they've got this this magic child who's got these different abilities to them right and so trying to reconcile that yeah no i like that it's a it's a good image because it's um well in the in the to take it for you know the harry potter world like it's a privilege to be able to go to Hogwarts, isn't it? It's like exactly. A, it yeah. makes you unique and special. Yeah, and yeah. and there are some families out there that, that do have that um, mm. do have that view, and I think it's a really a really healthy and validating view for the child to feel. Yes, I'm part of my family, and they're part of the hearing world, but I've got my special thing too, mm. and 
just because we're members of one doesn't mean we're excluded from the other. Mm. But then for the parents to make the effort of signing and empowering the child through that as well, that's a, that's a yeah. bonus, isn't it? Yeah, and there's yeah. more and more support for that in New Zealand. So there's a great um, program called First Signs fund by the, funded by the Ministry of Health and run by Deaf Aotearoa. Mm. And, um, of course, there's always more more demand and we need more hours, but the fact that there are deaf role models available to go into families' homes and work with them to um, boost their sign language is, is a really exciting development. Yeah, that's great. How many deaf people are in New Zealand? Is there a, a, a number? or? That's a curly question. So I actually worked um, in the social system. That's a good question. So I actually worked in the Social Statistics Development Unit at Statistics New Zealand. Um, I was around with the development of the previous disability survey. So I could give you the official numbers, right. but um, methodologically I can say that we're missing... We're not counting the people that's really important to count in a lot of our f- official statistics. So the I guess the official numbers are there are about 3,000 school-aged deaf kids in New Zealand um, with hearing loss. Um 28,000 sign language users, of whom only 7,000 are deaf. Um, but that's, like I say, that's not that's not the full story. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. And I'm curious as well, just with sign language itself, you know, um, you've got different accents in the world, you know, American English or New Zealand English, mm-hmm. UK English. Does it vary quite markedly across countries like that or yeah I really struggled with that in the UK not only was I mocked for my flat vowels and Kiwi accents and (laughs) idioms but also my sign language accent was mocked so New Zealand sign language belongs to the uh, British sign language family so it's closely related to Australian sign language and British sign language um, following the migration patterns of Mm -hmm. the early users and New Zealand Sign Language is about 70% the same as British Sign Language. Um, I found it actually most similar to dialects used in Scotland, maybe reflecting again a smaller population and a slower sort of language change, I'm not sure. But like, just like um, New Zealand uh, English, where I, I suspect we're more and more influenced by international media, especially American Sign Language, mm. and people watching videos on YouTube and things. Mm. so it is actually like people could watch you signing and say you're from New Zealand and that person's yeah, Australian and yeah and in New Zealand we also have dialectal variants between the North and South Islands and that's historically tied to the two deaf schools in mm. Auckland and Christchurch okay mm. so that's it so. yeah that's another reason why Christchurch is an amazing place to be um, for me it's an audiology hotspot as well as an entrepreneurial um uh, hotbed of activity right, as well. Right, combines both. Yeah. yeah, and just in terms of the history, um, I don't know if you'll know the full details here, but sign language itself, like how long has it been around? I'd say as long as you've had deaf people, really, mm-hmm. um, because yeah, people have a lot of misconceptions about sign language and assume that it's different to how spoken languages work. But languages evolve between. A shared experience and that's why sign language is not universal and that's why sign language you know New Zealand is related to British sign language um, but not American so Americans actually related to French sign language because mm. of a teacher that went there 
Hmm. Well, I'm just curious, like if we went back 100 years ago yeah. or 200 years ago, or, you know, like is there a point when people started writing down this means this and this means yeah, that? Yeah, so they, there are some really early sign language dictionaries and there'll be listeners out there who know a lot more about it than me. And there's some amazing, um, very, very early film footage in the United States. And even, you know, over 100 years ago, deaf people were worried about the loss of their language and culture and tried to capture and preserve that. So that's an incredible hmm. resource to have. But, yeah, in New Zealand we had... Um, the first school for the deaf was set up here in Christchurch and for various political reasons it was established as an oral school so they children had to speak. But as soon as you put a bunch of deaf people together and have, um, they also had deaf uh, staff acting as the housekeepers and stuff, you're going to get an organic language develop. Um, so that was the, the or- that and the... Um, some deaf settlers that came out themselves mm. with it was the origin of New Zealand Sign Language. And then, yeah, it's effectively sort of banned formally until 1979 where Signed English was introduced. Mm. Signed English is um, trying to force sort of spoken language grammar on visual signs, um, which doesn't work because that's not the visual modality... Uh, works in different ways right um but what it did was make it i guess acceptable to wave your hands around it opened again that key key idea it opened people up to the possibility that uh and acceptability that there's different ways to communicate mm. and in the late 90s um for the first time we had deaf teachers come back into deaf education and uh, interpret the interpreter course was uh, set up in auckland and full New Zealand sign language, like the native uh, language of the deaf community here, uh, started to be used in the deaf schools mm-hmm. and, and promoted. So, And now with um, you know that technology shift we talked about before, it's, it's a whole new phase. So it's deaf education and sign language use sort of ebbs and flows throughout history. Right, yeah. Oh, it's fascinating because it, it's an area that I just don't know very much about. And I think many people listening won't know either. So it's quite interesting to hear about the history and, you know, that, that there would be that ebbs and flows and things. And mm. um, what's next for Talktown? What What are your plans for the coming months? And Wow, yeah. So I um, next week I'm pitching in the BNZ Startup Alley at Webstock, mm-hmm. um, which is an amazing launching ground for lots of great places. I... I guess last year was was really fun. It was a lot of exploration of the idea and and validating it and getting some feedback. But this year it's about um, putting that into action and Mm -hmm. keeping that momentum. And I'm aiming to release the first version in Australasia in October October this year. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just describe the moment because I think you won won something in, was that November or December? Uh, October, October last year. Yeah. Yep. Um, just describe what that is and what that did for your, I guess, your idea of taking sure. it forward. Yeah, so I had all these little kind of wins building up momentum, like I won the, the boot camp at UCE, and then Michelle encouraged me to enter Entree. And, um, so that was a big competition for startups, for students at uh, the three tertiary institutes in Canterbury. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, I sort of got through each round and got into the finals, and um, I really, I really didn't know what to expect. 
but it was a great experience and it really pushed me to meet those external deadlines and make progress and um, make some hard decisions. On the night itself, uh, the grand finals, all these prizes were being awarded and I wasn't getting anything and I thought <laughs> it was getting closer and closer. I thought, wow, I've either done terribly or really well. I have no idea which. <laughs> right. And um, then Isn't that funny that you'd be that in that, that uncertain that I, moments I really before. didn't know where I sat. Yeah. Um, but then I won, and it was just an incredible, an incredible moment. And I had to sort of still myself and go, "Yep, you're doing this. This right. is happening." So I got my giant novelty check and trophy. Nice. And um, <laughs> the next day, flew out to start pitching my idea to global hearing tech manufacturers. So hmm. it was an incredible point, but it's turned out to be that was the start. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably a moment that you need to somehow grasp and hold on to through the the months and months and years of hard work that follows, <laughs> right? <Definitely. laughs> what do you do with a novelty check? Um, I have to confess, I do drag it out and show my friends sometimes. Yeah. yeah, My partner was away for work and I had the great pleasure of pranking him with it the next day. Okay. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Oh, really? So he yeah. came home and it's like, yeah. oh, what's this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I often wonder because you see those, you know, you win the lottery or whatever and it's this giant thing. Yeah, just, it's, um, does it get thrown sitting, away or is it... Sitting under my desk at the moment just quietly motivating me. Nice. Yeah, yeah that's good. <laughs> um, and just to finish off, we talk a lot about purpose on this podcast. And I think I know the answer to this question, but how do you feel like what you're doing now is fulfilling purpose for you? Fulfilling purpose, it just satiates this incredible drive and annoyance I have that people with hearing impairment and deafness have can have poor outcomes for completely preventable reasons. Mm. And... We can do something about that. And I am. Why I keep doing it, selfishly, is really, really fun. And it's really <laughs> rewarding. Yeah. And um, I love that I get to be an audiologist who's also a social entrepreneur and a researcher. And all of those things feed off each other. Yeah. Well, I can see in the history of what we talked about, you know, right back from your family origins. And then, you know, being at university and seeing on the door... What, what is this? Like, that's pretty chance encounter, isn't it? But serendipitous. It kind of, I yeah, think I think, I think that, that's a great word, yeah. Um, and then just what's come since then, you know, the experience in the UK and then coming back and, and doing your course and then that particular subject where you write something called Talk Town and then what's it become? You know, it's an amazing, amazing journey. So thank you very much for sharing it. If people w want to connect with you or find out more, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. Well, I really welcome as much engagement and, and feedback as possible. You can head check out our project website on www.talktowngame.net or find me on Twitter, TalktownGame or Facebook. Great. Yeah, well, what we'll do is um, if you send me the links in the show notes, like underneath, I'll put in the links to all these things so people can check it out. Yeah. Well, Zoe, thank you very much for your time. It's been really amazing to hear about your journey and hear about what you're doing. And I think it's fantastic. And, you know, I think the children, the feedback from the children is wonderful. And it's great that you can do something that's fulfilling purpose and also helping other people. So thanks for your time today. Cool. Thanks for having me. Well, I do hope you enjoyed and were challenged by that interview with Zoe. I know I certainly appreciated the perspective that she brought 
in terms of the challenges that deaf people face. Now, in coming weeks, we're going to be speaking with Julia Recklich about the link between nutrients and mental health, as well as Dave Lane about open source software. So, as usual, it's going to be a wide variety of topics coming up. I do hope you can join me for those and other upcoming episodes. And again, if you enjoy these episodes, this is one of dozens of other interviews, so you might want to check out some of those earlier ones as well. And if you enjoyed it, consider telling somebody else about the podcast, because the only reason it's growing is that people like you are telling their friends and other people and posting about it on social media. Until next time. (music) 